Let's talk about the Passover. Exodus chapter 12 is where we'll be, not all night, but most of the night in Exodus chapter 12. One of, it's obviously not the most, but one of the most important stories in the whole Bible. Might be the most important story in the Old Testament uh, as we think about the importance of this for the nation of Israel, as we lead up to the Passover, we're not, you know, not going to read all this stuff, but just sort of give you a reminder, a refresher of what's happening in Exodus as we lead up to this. In Exodus 1, right, we have the oppression of Israel and Egypt as they're, they're slaves in Egypt. And then we have the early life of Moses in Exodus 2. And then in Exodus 3 and 4, we have Moses' call, and then he returns back to Egypt. Uh, there's a, a lot of building conflict between Pharaoh and Moses, and he makes the life harder for the Israelites in chapters 5 and 6. And then chapters 7 through 10 is the first nine plagues. And uh, we had an interesting discussion, of course, on Thursday nights in our Romans class about Pharaoh's role in all this and God's uh, uh, judgment upon Pharaoh, leading up to, of course, the final warning in chapter 11, where God warns them, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send, and there's going to be the death of the firstborn. Leading up to the story in chapter 12, the Passover, coming off of many displays of God's power and wrath and judgment in Egypt. This is a story that is a capstone of God's wrath. And I think it's significant as we talk about this story being the capstone of God's wrath on Egypt, that it is a story that is centered on how to avoid wrath. Right? It is a story that follows God's destructive power with, here's how to avoid that destruction. That is the emphasis of the story in chapter 12. So we remember that the story of Abraham's sacrifice, we looked at last week in Genesis 22, is, I think, the foundational story of faith. That is, it is the story in the Bible that really gets the, uh, the idea of faith into the narrative, and then it's going to keep being referred back to over and over and over again in the New Testament. In a similar way, the Passover is a foundational story of deliverance. God's deliverance from judgment. Many stories, principles, commands, doctrines throughout the rest of the Bible either expand upon or mirror or fulfill, we're going to look at the word fulfill in, in, a, in a couple ways, the story of the Passover. Ideas that are introduced in this story that are interwoven throughout the rest of the Bible narrative and teaching because this is a foundational story for God's deliverance of Israel. Not only is this true of Old Testament stories, but of New Testament stories and teachings as well. Now, as we read the story, I want you to note the interesting tension. This is going to be one of the main emphases as we go through in just a minute. The tension between practical necessities in God's commands for the Passover and ritual. When I say ritual, that is a loaded word perhaps, but it is the things that God asked them to do, not for a practical reason, but just because he said so. This is the idea of ritual, the ritual service that we provide to God, the ritual worship and the ritual offerings that we offer to God that are, are not based in practicality as we see them, but just because we want to be obedient. Now, in the story of the Exodus, in, in 12, uh, Exodus 12 rather, story of the Passover, there are a number of components that have practical reasons behind them, as we'll go through this story. Exodus 12, 1 through 6, the beginning of this. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, in the most basic sense, we know what's going to happen, right? He's already said, the death of the firstborn. I'm going to send this angel of death to go in, and he's going he's to destroy the firstborn in Egypt. There's no practical reason for this, right? God could just know, because he's God, and he knows all things, he could just know who should he spare and who should he not. Who's right with him and who's not. Who's in the nation of Israel and who's not. He can just do that if he wants to because he's God. There's no practical reason why they should have to kill a lamb. Other than God said so. As a test of obedience and submission. As we understand the, the, re, the practical reason for a lamb to be a substituting sacrifice, a male without blemish a year old, well, the Hebrew writer is going to say later on, right, that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. As we are going to think about next week in the, all the different lamb sacrifices in the, uh, the Levitical law, the lamb doesn't have any power. It's just an animal. The power is in the command of God and the obedience to the command. So the whole business is fundamentally the question. Will Israel do what God wants or not? Right? That's the question. They'll either obey or they won't. Now, there are some practical matters as we think about the way that he lays this out. Lamb of sheep or goats. This is sort of an under, I don't know. I'd kind of forgotten about this before I studied this lesson tonight, for tonight. Uh, th that it could be a lamb of sheep or goats. It wasn't just the, the sheep, but uh, why would that be? Well... Depends on what's available. He's giving more options for people based on what they have available to them. And more than that could be shared among families. Or, and you think about why that would be. Well, if a family's not wealthy enough to have their own lamb, well, they could share with a neighbor. Or, as we'll see in a minute, the idea of the eating of the flesh and what you can eat. He says that, right? Uh, according to what each person can eat, there's a reason why that needs to be. So already he's introducing that some of this that he's laying out is inherently tied to the story that's going on in the background. The story of Egypt and Israel in Egypt and Egypt, Israel needs to leave Egypt and that promise of deliverance. This is not just a ritual that he's commanding devoid of context. A lot of this plays into specifically what is happening in Israel. Even the timing of the sacrifice at twilight has a practical purpose, which we'll read as we go through. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it, uh, they shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. We are not going to, I'm going to uh, make this statement, although I have more time now. I have so much time. Maybe we will. Probably not. I had not intended on going into the idea of unleavened bread, uh, the unle Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also instituted here, uh, because that is not really the focus of this series of sermons, right, on the lamb. But even the unleavened bread has a purpose. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head and its legs and its inner parts. You shall not let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Some of you in this room would hate that, eating it in haste. I know who you are. 
For I will pass over the I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. This is death that I am certain is on a scale that Egypt was not prepared for. So much death. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Now, the gods of Egypt are made up. We know that. They don't exist. When he says he's executing judgments on the gods of Egypt, what does that mean? It means he's showing the people of Egypt that they are made up. That they are useless to the people. That there is one God. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, the symbolism of blood is powerful. But again, there's no practical reason for this. The blood is not magic. There's no special power in this blood. Now, we'll talk about, as we go into this, the Lamb of God in eternity. Jesus, the perfect Lamb, his blood does have special power, different deal. But here, the symbolism, the reminder that death actually still visits every house, right? I'll, I will strike the death of the firstborn of both man and beast in Egypt. The Israelites are not exempt from death. It just so happens that they have a very specific death. It is the death of a lamb instead of the other death. Death does not avoid any household. And the blood serves as a reminder of that, that death came to everyone. They were not saving themselves. They were at the mercy of someone much stronger than them who had decided in his mercy to pass over them at a bare minimum of obedience. You're just going to have to kill a lamb and eat it and put the blood on the doorpost. That, that doesn't do anything against the angel of God other than a demonstration, a sign that they were obedient. And again, the question was simple, right? Would they obey or not? Now, there were, there were some tangibly practical reasons for many of these. Roasting the animal whole, eating it in haste, the way they were dressed, right? This had a, a practical purpose, which, again, as we'll go through the story, we'll see what that is. And why all this mattered, as we think about what was going to happen, is they were about to leave, right? They were about to leave Egypt. Now, I don't know... They do that ahead of time. I don't know how much they were sort of thinking about that ahead of time, but many of these commandments are only there because there's a specific timeline for the night, which we'll get to as we go through. Verse 22, we're going to skip down to verse 22. There's a whole bunch of stuff about the unleavened bread that we're not going to read. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the... Uh, this is Moses speaking to them now, retelling, reiterating the commands for Israel. And touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What are they going to say? The, you know, I think about if we were doing this, and even the kids ask this now, right? Uh, the, of course, most aptly, we think about the Lord's Supper here. And it, it doesn't take very long in a kid's life for them to ask, why are you doing this? Mom, why can I not have the juice? 
Mom, why can I not have the bread? That's what they want. Now, they've learned it by this point, but, you know, the, the kids ask, right? And, you know, they're thinking about this service that's going to be going on in perpetuity. What was the point? God is wanting this to be a teaching moment. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. God was clear to emphasize that what was happening mattered in the long run. This was not just a one-time event. This was not just something that it was going to happen and then it was going to be over. This was something that they were going to do over and over and over. Generation after generation after generation. This is something that would linger in their society. He's reminding them in the instituting moment of the promises to come, right? When you enter the land, I'm going to give you the land. Don't forget about that. I'm going to give you the land. When you get there, keep doing this. This is not just for Egypt. This is for in the land of promise too, to, to reiterate. And making sure that they know they're supposed to use this ritual to teach their children what God had done. What was the importance of that? So that generation after generation would remember why it was so important. This is what happens when we don't teach our children, is we begin to do things just because we do them, right? How long does it take? We do things the way we do them. Well, why? Why do you do that? Because that's the way we've always done it. It would have happened with Israel too, right? We eat this, we sacrifice this lamb on the 14th day of the first month. Why do we do this every year? Oh, I don't know. We just have always done it this way. It's just, that's the way we do it. Don't ask questions. But they were supposed to remind their children there's a reason why we do this, and the reason is God spared us in Egypt. This was the Passover of the Lord's destroyer, that we were spared destruction. We need to be teaching why we do the things we do. The rituals that we have that God has commanded us to continue in perpetuity, why do we do them? The answer is not, and nor should it ever be, we do them just because we've always done them that way. If that's the reason, then that's insufficient. The reason is, and for our purposes, we have a variety of reasons for different things. For them, of course, that reason was because God didn't kill our firstborn in Egypt. That's why. Uh, a lot of the rituals of service to God serve in this way, to remind, instruct, and convict, to keep our mind, in our minds firmly the reasons and the importance of obedience. The Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about more in just a minute, is no exception to this, right? Why do we do this every week? Well, at some point there needs to be some teaching. Why do we do this every week? It's not, and even then, it's not just because the Lord said so. Now, he could have said that, right? In the story of the Passover, do this every year. When your children ask why, tell them because the Lord said to do it. He didn't even say that, right? He told them to give them the reason. Why do we do these things? It's not just even because God said so, but there are good reasons why God tells us to do the things that we do. Verse 29, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in that night, in the night rather, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where someone was not dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go, uh, up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flock and your herds, and you, as you have said, be gone and bless me also. Here we see the practical reasons. 
Why are they eating it in haste? Why do they have their clothes on? Why do they have their belt on and sandals? Why are they not, not uh, they're just roasting it whole and they're burning it up, whatever was left is, it's time to go. We have to be ready to go. Notice they killed it at twilight so they'd have time to do all the other stuff before midnight. Midnight was the hour of doom. And so they had to get all that done and get inside before midnight. And all that stuff had to be ready to go because Israel was about to be kicked out of Egypt. Now, we're not going to read it, but more than this, the whole nation of Egypt, they join with Pharaoh and they urge them, hasten them, leave. And as they're leaving, they give them a bunch of stuff, valuable things. Get out of here. We're tired of you being here. But really, it's not that we're tired of you being here. It's what? We are afraid of you. They were afraid of God. And what were they worried about? If we have Israel stay here, who's dying tomorrow night? Who's dying the night after that? And so the reason for all the things that God, not all, the reason why God had organized this the way that he had was, again, not just devoid of context, what was to follow a very strict timeline for the night. I think I said most of this stuff already. Even the business with the unleavened bread, which we didn't read, mattered because they needed bread that they could eat on the road. They needed for the next seven days. They were going to be on the road. They can't wait for bread to rise. We got to have stuff that we can eat quickly, that can be transported easily. So that even the unleavened bread was not just devoid of context, but was a practical command because God knew the blessing that he was about to give them. And this is one of the things that I think we need to emphasize as we think about ourselves. The commands of God have tangible benefit that God knows. And a lot of the reasons he tells us to do what he tells us to do is because he knows the outcome and we don't. He knows what will happen if we obey his commands. And so he has structured them in a way to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. At the same time, this is accompanied by simple matters of obedience and grace. Again, I cannot stress this enough. It's not like the angel was allergic to lamb blood. It's not like he looked at the house and was like, oh, I can't go in there. I'm so grossed out by the blood. That's not what it was. It was a mark of obedience. It was a mark that these people were included in the covenant with God, that they were the people of God. Now, could God have made any other thing? Sure, it didn't have to be lamb blood. Could have been, I don't know. I don't know what else grow around Egypt. Could be any number of things that were in Egypt. He chose this for reasons that will become clear as we think about the sort of the types and anti-types, the shadows and the true realities. But for them, the sacrifice of a lamb was a sign of obedience, that they were willing to do what God has said. And you think about in Israel, you think about the houses of Israel. I don't know if this is the case. We'll never know. It'd be interesting to know. If there was anyone in the Israelite area of Egypt that was like, eh, I'm not going to do that. Eh, that's ridiculous. It'd be interesting to know. I don't know if that was the case or not. But what would have happened? They would have been included in judgment too. Not because the lamb blood had any special power, but because God's grace was tied to their willingness to obey. As it always has been. As it ever will be. Now, I think we can see some of the patterns that carry forward into the covenant of Christ as we think about how this carries forward. I want to really stress again, 
There is nothing about the lamb that should inherently protect Israel from the angel of death. I've said a bunch of this. The rituals served in perpetuity to remind them of the grace of God's promise, that he had spared them even though he didn't really have to. He did that because he loved them. And the practical matters served to remind them of the tangible blessing. What was the tangible blessing? Well, we got to leave slavery. And in perpetuity, as they celebrated this Passover, that's what they would be remembering, right? They would be remembering the grace of God, and they would be remembering the promise that he had fulfilled, the promise to bring them out of Egypt, to save them from slavery, and to bring them into the promised land. Now, as we come forward to us, the sacrifice of Jesus fulfills this event, completes this event in that he, as the lamb, does have inherent value and power. He is not a sheep. He has power. The sacrifice of the lamb in the Passover was a sign of obedience. Jesus' death was not a sign. It was a sign, not just a sign. Jesus' death had the power of the death of deity. His sacrifice was not just an animal. His sacrifice was the creator. And so the pattern, the true reality, I love the way he says this in Hebrews. These things are but a shadow of the true realities. The value of a lamb versus the value of the lamb. One of those things is not like the other. The power of the sacrifice of Jesus is not just in obedience. The power is in the death itself. His death itself because he is powerful. As the story in Genesis 22, this is a story of substitution, isn't it? A story that demonstrates that without the blood or the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now it's important to note. Both the story in Genesis 22 and the story in Exodus 12 are not about forgiveness in the stories. They're not about forgiveness, right? We understand that. They are about, in Abraham's case, a test. What are you willing to offer? In the story of Exodus, a test again. Are you willing to obey? There's no discussion of forgiveness, God's not forgiving the Israelites in either case. He's not forgiving the Israelites in Exodus 12. He is substituting one life for another. There is an exchange of deaths, death of a lamb instead of death of a person. But when we carry that forward to our circumstance, the substitution is inherently tied to forgiveness. As we'll talk about next week in the Lamb Laws in Leviticus, uh, this is where this idea of forgiveness and atonement really begins to be brought into the story, and next week's we'll, we'll really emphasize this. But for us, it's not just a substitution of one death for another, or rather we could say this, it is a substitution of one death for another, but it's not the substitution of one physical death for another physical death. That's what it was in Exodus 12. Either the Lamb's going to die tonight, or your firstborn's going to die tonight. One of those two things is dying tonight. For us, that's not how it is. We understand that. The, the shadow versus the true reality. Jesus died, but I'm still going to die. It was not a substitution of his physical life for my physical life, because I'm still going to die. It was a substitution of his physical life for my spiritual life, my e eternal fate. As we see again, the shadow 
of the true realities. Because the sacrifice of Jesus carries so much more weight. It is a substitution, not one for one. Really, God's getting the bad end of the deal. From a rationalist standpoint. Of course, he doesn't view it that way. Why? He doesn't view it that way because he loves us. What he gave up was, yes, we can say it, more valuable than what he got. What God gave up was more valuable than what he got. But it doesn't matter because he loves us. Because he cares about us. Of course, the most tangible expression of this sort of structure that we're talking about is the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, verse 14. This is the, one of the instances of the, the Last Supper with Jesus. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat of it until it is fill, uh, fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This idea of the fulfillment, how Jesus fulfilled this Passover. What does he say? I'm not going to eat it again until it is fulfilled. What's going to fulfill it? Well, he's about to do it. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, is, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There's a lot of parallels between the Passover lamb and this last Passover of Jesus. Of course, we know what's about to happen in Luke 22, not just Luke, but the rest of the Gospels, that Jesus is about to go die. That's what he's about to do. Now, they're not going to go through the business of dipping Jesus' blood and spreading on the doorpost, because he already did that. That's what this is. That's what he's instituting right here, is the flesh, the eating of the flesh, and the drinking of the blood. Isn't that what he said in John 6? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Here's what he's instituting. The Passover lamb. And we've got a reversal here, right? The reversal, and of course in Exodus 12, they killed the lamb, they put the blood, they ate him. They ate the lamb. Here we see the reversal of this, that Jesus is instituting the eating and the drinking, and then he's going to go die. The other parallel that I find to be interesting, the Passover was, in many respects, the inaugurating event of Israel as a nation. It was the foundational story. When did Israel become a nation? They became a nation at the Passover. When God passed over them and brought them out of the land of Egypt, they gained their independence from, from Egypt. For us, it is the same thing, right? This is the inaugurating event, this combined with his death, right? Going into the, the sacrifice of Jesus, which is why he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God is coming in his death, his resurrection. So as the Israelites were to eat the sacrificed lamb, so too we eat the lamb. Every Sunday, we eat the lamb. We understand, of course, the symbolism in that, the, 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 the powerful symbolism of the, the bread and the juice, we understand, as the blood of the lamb was the sign of protection and inclusion. That's what they were doing, right? They were putting on the doorpost as a sign. So too is the blood of our lamb. What does he say? As often as you eat of it and drink of it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we do this, we are proclaiming we belong. 
We belong in this kingdom. Jesus will come back. He died. He rose. He will come back. The blood on the lintels and the doorpost was a sign for the angel of death. He comes into the, the place, the city, the, the whatever they, the encampment they had. And he sees that sign and he knows not that house. For us, the sign is a little bit different, though, isn't it? That we proclaim to one another, we proclaim to anyone who's here, we're in this covenant, we're in this kingdom, we're in this communion with the Lord. This is a sign that we belong. As it was to be a repeated memorial in time of teaching, so does our memorial serve the same purpose. Why? Some people have asked me this before. Why do we have another mini-sermon before the communion? Why do we have two sermons? Now, you think we have a mini-sermon. In other countries, other places, they just have two sermons, two full sermons. They have the full sermon before the communion, and then they have another full sermon. We can do that too, make our service longer. Because what we see in the Passover, the importance of teaching why we do this. And because this is the most important event in human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it warrants some extra teaching, reminding. So that when people ask, why do you do that? We tell them why, not because God said so. We tell them why we remember his death, what it means, why it has value, and ultimately what the promise is that goes with it. As it reminded them that they were powerless in themselves to avoid death, so too are we reminded. We didn't save ourselves, guys. He saved us. The lamb sacrifice was not some magic charm that had any power in its own. It was a sign of obedience. It was God's grace, his mercy that spared them from death. As it is with us, my obedience to the Lord only has power because he has already provided the power. And I'm just signing up to share in it through faithful obedience to him. As they were reminded of the blessings they received, so too should we remember. The blessings, a couple of blessings. For them, it was the blessing of freedom from, Israel, or freedom from Egypt, the blessing of finally having their independence, the blessing of not dying. That's a good blessing. For us, what are the blessings that we remember as we think about this Passover? Well, not dying, that's another blessing. Not, again, not physical. But spiritual, we're remembering that we are not going to spiritually die because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We have the blessing, not really of independence, but rather of fellowship, right? Because we're doing this as a group. We're doing it, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 11? You're waiting for one another. Do it together. Think about one another as you're doing this. We have the blessing of inclusion in the covenant. The blessing of forgiveness. Again, the story in Exodus 12 wasn't really about forgiveness. For us, we understand it is about forgiveness. That I deserve to die, but I'm going to be spared that because of the grace of God. As we conclude, we're going to sing 904. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? As we think about the Passover lamb in Exodus, a, a memorial, an event, that's what I meant to say, an event that they remembered year after year after year. 
This is worthy of more remembrance, which is why we do it week after week after week. But might I suggest that the Passover death of Jesus is really worthy of remembering every day. Every day that we're alive, we have blessing of inclusion in the covenant. We remember his death and his sacrifice. We're not partaking of communion every day, but we can remember his death, burial, and resurrection every day. And so we offer the invitation to join in the covenant, to be washed in the blood, to partake in his death. A simple invitation to repent, to be immersed, to confess, and to remember what God has done for us. Come while we stand and sing.